I remember maybe it was、um, New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty-one. Maybe it was eighty-two. I can't remember for sure. I was very young. It's one of my earliest memories, and、um, I had no concept of time moving forward. Because what I could gather as I reflect on that period was, I look at a clock and I see that the seconds keep returning, the minutes keep returning, ten o'clock keeps returning. I look at the clock and I see a circle, and it just keeps going around. Then I came to understand that the day will keep going around. Tuesday's not gone. Tuesday will be here again. You know, the month will keep coming around in a circle. May's not gone forever; it'll be back. But then, on that New Year's Eve, Mom and Dad are saying goodbye to 1981 or 1982. I don't remember. And I'm like, "What do you What do you mean?" Well, and I said, "When does 1982 come back? You know, like how the day comes back, the month comes back." And they said, "It doesn't." And I started crying. <laughs> <laughs> Because I said that's not how time works, and、uh, no, I said no. This that's that's because we're moving forward. We keep saying these days, but we're actually moving forward in time. And that was my first、um, struggle with time. I struggled to accept that. I remember. I think I still struggle to accept that. But that also was about the beginning of my introduction to music from my father. I started playing the guitar at like four or five years old. And so, as a musician, you know, my whole journey is a journey of developing an understanding of time. We have a whole language in music to describe time, to organize time, tempo, beats, rhythm, and so on. And to feel that and to make sense of that is what is unique about music. Art decorates space, and music decorates time. So I've been fascinated with time my whole life, especially my whole life as a musician. Fast forward to the '90s, late '90s, when I'm in college, and I remember reading a book called Einstein's Dreams. Cute little book,、uh, fictional book about ideas from relativity, from Einstein's theories of relativity, and how they might fictionally play out if you could exaggerate some of these concepts of time. So, as I described when I was little, we have this. Understanding that time is moving from past to present, and then the future will come, and that creates the sense of a timeline, and that it's moving forward, not backward. We don't really have the sense that it goes future, present, past, and、uh, we all experience this, and and then we organize it in different ways, and and so time on on one hand is the duration between events, so we're moving forward through the days. Because the Earth is rotating on its axis, for example, and once it rotates all the way around, that's a day. And as it's rotating, it's also revolving around the Sun. And when it revolves completely, then that's a year. And we cut it up. We cut it up, and it's been cut up in a lot of different ways. Some cultures still use a lunar calendar for the month. I think it makes a lot of sense because you have a clock right in the sky. We only know that there's a full moon coming when people start talking about there's going to be a full moon or there's going to be a blue moon or a super moon, and then we might look. But if we were on the lunar calendar, we would have 28/29 days, 
and it would still come 12 times. And every time we look up at night, it would be like, there it is, the 13th day, 14th day, 28th day, because it's 90% full. It's like a clock would be right there for us and we could see whether we, you know, we're looking at the calendar or not. It makes total sense to me, but, and I know I was born on the new moon day, so I still like to look at the moon and follow the months that way. But most of the modern world doesn't do that anymore. And the weeks are divided into seven. But Russia once tried to divide the the week into 10 days to fit more with the metric system, but it didn't work. (laughs) People were too stuck in the seven-day week. Maybe if it was like, you know, you work five days and get five days off, we would be be on board. But even working seven days to get three days off isn't worth it. You know from this three-day weekend we just had, that felt like nothing, right? It flies by. In Einstein's dreams, there's all these stories, but one always shines in my mind as a scenario that I could relate to. So as it turns out, since Einstein, time doesn't neatly flow the way that we feel it does or think it does. So for example, in one of these essays in Einstein's dreams, there is a fictitious planet where the higher you go in altitude, the slower time flows. So what do you think everybody wants to do in that world? Climb and live at higher altitudes. So everybody is either living in the mountains or in the skyscrapers in this world. And the higher your apartment is or your house is in this skyscraper would mean what? The more elevated you are in status because obviously the higher you go, the longer you can live. And so the real estate way up there is gonna be the most expensive. But who ends up down below? The poets, the artists, you know, the carefree, the curious, the free-spirited, the so-called outcast. They just say, you know what? I'm going down below. (laughs) I'm going down in the valley and I'm just going to enjoy my life, even though it's going to be shorter. So I thought that was a really beautiful story. But it is true that time flows differently at different altitudes. Why? Because time is not really separate from space. And that's why Einstein's uh, theories of relativity opened up the idea of space-time. And when you go closer to larger gravitational forces, then time starts to slow down. So it's actually the opposite of that particular essay. So the Earth's core is actually two and a half years younger than the surface, even though it seems on the surface that they've been through everything together, but they haven't. And there's also, this has also been demonstrated at different altitudes with atomic clocks. So time flows differently depending on where you are at in space. And some of our ideas about time are really because of our limited perspective within the universe. The idea that time flows forward has a lot to do with how our solar system works. It is conceivable that time flows backwards or in other directions in other parts of the universe, which are not totally separate from us, but just like right now, it seems like we're in a flat place in Illinois, but we do know, I think we know, 
that with a wide enough perspective that our planet is curved, it's a sphere. But in the limited perspective, we talk about it being flat. Similarly, in this part of the universe, time seems to neatly flow in a certain way. But if you just skip over to one planet, Venus, one day is longer than one year. It takes like 250 Earth days for it to rotate on its axis, and it takes like 240 days for it to revolve around the sun. So your whole idea, if that was your perspective of time, would just be totally different. So it's affected by different things. Our perception is different depending on these perspectives. It's, it's dependent on a lot of other things, and we'll explore that tonight. But let me just say a few more thoughts about physics. Motion also affects time. So the very famous philosophical um, experiment since Einstein is known as the twin paradox. And the twin paradox is a thought experiment where if a pair of twins came to the world and one of the two got onto a spaceship and could launch out into space at the speed of light or near the speed of light, uh, the speed limit of the universe, and I'd do it almost instantaneously because in reality to get up to the speed of light would take years as far as we know. But if they could instantaneously go at the speed of light without dying, and let's say that person flies outward from Earth for 30 years at, we'll just say, the speed of light, and then turns around and comes back at the speed of light and lands on Earth. That person, with his watch and calendar and keeping track of time, is now 60 years old, but would actually be less than 60 years old because of length contraction. At that speed, the distance wherever he was going would have gotten smaller, so maybe he would feel like 50 years have passed and have been able to observe on whatever clocks he would have and calendars that 50 years have passed. Meanwhile, when he gets out of the spaceship, his twin would be long deceased, maybe hundreds of years into since the departure, since the death of the sibling. If that person went five years to uh, another planet, came back and is 10 years old, there would be a multitude of years of separation between the ages of the two brothers or two siblings. So this is called the twin paradox, which really kind of blows things up because how is that possible? Isn't there a universal time and they would stay the same age regardless of how fast you're going? The answer is no. Not only is the one going at the speed of light slowing down, but the clock is slowing down. His heart is slowing down. His thought waves are slowing down. Everything is slowing down, but feeling exactly as normal. So only from a different reference frame where a person's not traveling at the speed of light can we say, that person's younger. But within that reference frame of motion, everything is happening as normal. That person lives a normal 60 years or 50 years, and the brother lives the normal lifetime, but they're now separated by maybe tens or hundreds of years because there is no universal time, not according to physics and quantum physics. The reason for that is because if the universe were plodding along time, if time is real, and the universe is plodding along, how is it 
that there is something outside of the universe with the stopwatch? Well, that would have to be within the universe. And so if it's within the universe, you could think of time more like a ball of yarn. It's all rolled up somewhere. And that's why Einstein, to console his deceased friend's family, wrote a letter saying, us believing physicists know that past, present, and future is nothing but a stubborn illusion. And uh, he wasn't just saying that just to be funny. He was saying that as everything that ever was, is, or will be, is always. And what does he mean by that? Well, if we think about our experiences, what we would call now, nobody can agree on. When something happens, two observers cannot agree on when that happens. And when I'm looking at you, I'm not seeing you right now because light has to touch you and come to my eye and give me an impression of you. And that happened in the past. Just like when we're looking at the stars, you may have heard we're looking right at stars that aren't, don't exist anymore because they're, they've burned out millions of years ago, but the light is still traveling. But have you ever thought that if life on those star systems were looking at us, they wouldn't see us? If they had a powerful enough telescope millions of years away, they'd be seeing what was going on millions of years BC as right now for them. So whatever happened is happening now somewhere in the universe. And when I look at the moon, I'm seeing it two seconds ago. When I look at the sun, I'm looking at it seven or eight minutes ago. Even when the sun dies, we'll have a sun for eight minutes. Let me explain then what that could mean for our practical experience. So Einstein's saying there is a block universe. And, and since then, many physicists agree that there is a block universe, which means there isn't this timeline. There's just the Earth rotating and certain events happening in our world that we've neatly organized and feel like we are going forward. But in particle physics, we see, well, it doesn't really flow that way. There's something known as quantum entanglement. And quantum entanglement means in some of these particle physics labs, that sometimes when they break up an atom, two particles will have a very bizarre romantic relationship. I'm just calling it romantic, but they're just really connected in some undeniable way. And if you separate these two particles and you put them anywhere else in the universe, they will communicate with each other instantaneously. If you rotate one in Las Vegas, the other one in Switzerland will rotate simultaneously in an equal and opposite way as if you were touching it. And you could move it to any point in the universe. And this is a problem for physicists because it, uh, it doesn't make sense knowing that the speed of light is the fastest speed in the universe and they're communicating faster than the speed of light. So that problem needs some sort of mathematical solution in physics. And now some group of physicists, they're a little bit on the fringe, but they are growing in number, are suggesting that, well, if we think about the mathematics of uh, the quantum reality, there has to be time symmetry. It has to work in both directions. And maybe what's happening is that in this quantum space, time doesn't neatly flow forward as we think. 
Perhaps there is a such thing known as retrocausality. The future of particles rotating together communicates back. Just like from the past when I talked to my father, I can know it now in the present. It doesn't matter how far away he is. You see what I'm saying? So if you think of now as a point in time, as here is a point in space, we feel as though we live on the edge of time. But scientists are saying that's no more accurate than us living on the edge of space. You know, it's just a feeling. It's just a neurobiological <coughs> process. And it's something that is also culturally conditioned within us. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. So what does that mean? That now is more like the middle of a popsicle stick. And depending on what's going on on the ends, you may get something in the present. Now I thought, okay, that's totally bizarre and that I don't know what to do with that. But does that have any practical um, meaning for us as human beings with what we're facing in the here and now day to day? People are talking about the way time is flowing for you. And we don't, none of us agree on it either, by the way. <laughs> for some, it's moving fast. For some, it's moving slow. Parents are seeing their children up, growing up really fast. Children are saying, I can't grow fast enough. So, but does it have some real-world practicality? Well, there was a, um, a psychologist at Cornell about six years ago who wanted to see if future events affect present cognition in his students. So he came up with a variety of experiments. And uh, one of the most interesting ones was this guessing game with two curtains on a screen. Only one of the curtains is hiding something, and the students are to guess which one. He knows which one in the future is going to be re re revealed to them. And he does this thousands of times, and it turns out they're right about 50% of the time. But then he changes what's behind the curtain from something that has no meaning to the students to an erotic image. And suddenly, the student's statistical success dramatically increases. The future is now holding something arousing for his young, young students, and their success rate goes up by like five, six percent, and their bodies start to respond in some cases before the curtain is revealed. Now this is highly controversial stuff. Most people don't even want to read about it, but it's published in, a, in some very reputable scientific journals, the Journal of Social Psychology, and it was experimented with at Cornell. Um, now, if you contemplate this for a moment and you re reflect on your life, you will probably notice that you have felt that. And, and yet maybe we just shrug it off as a coincidence. But since I've been reflecting and preparing mentally or making my mind receptive to talk about something like I do, I've noticed something something like it and i'm very open to the idea that it's just my own imagination but let me just share an experience from yesterday memorial day so i had the thought after working for part of the day for a shortened holiday here well i have some time why don't i go to chicago because i want to get some bottles of a particular kind of kombucha which is a chinese tea that's only made by by this guy in Chicago, I think I have enough time. 
I look at my, time is the most common word in the English language, by the way. Most common noun, I should say. The is the most common word. Time is the most common noun. So I head to the city and it's not going to take long. It's going to take much less time than it ordinarily would because of the holiday. But I miss my exit. And I end up having to get off on Lakeshore Drive. And where do you think everybody is in Chicago on Memorial Day? They're on Lakeshore Drive. They're at the beach. And it was something like I've never seen. It was just like mass amount of people in all the way up the beach. Like it was like a festival on the beach. Anyways, I'm, I'm, at first I'm really frustrated because I see my uh, Google map all of a sudden add 45 minutes <laughs> onto my destination. And I started getting frustrated. But then I thought, wait a minute. I've just been contemplating and studying future events affect present cognition. Let me be open to that. Let me just imagine for a moment that time isn't flowing forwards and I'm not struggling right now the way I think I would be in my ordinary conception of time. Maybe I've chosen this moment because of what I do in the future, but my mind doesn't let me experience it that way. So I just started to enjoy myself. I'm looking at the people and or inching along, something that would ordinarily be frustrating. Finally, I get through this zoo, this circus of traffic, 45 minutes later than expected, I end up at my destination at the cafe. And as I come to the only parking spot, I find myself fighting with one of my good friends in Chicago for that spot. And then she waves over and honks me, it's me, you don't have to fight me for the spot, you can have it. And I start laughing, and we get out, and we are standing in the middle of the street, and I said, I think, <laughs> I think you just impacted what I did 45 minutes ago, <laughs> jokingly. So she says, so right now, I gotta spend this summer getting ready for my future because of what's going to be in the future, I gotta work to try to get things wrapped up here now. And I'm like, that is exactly what I was just thinking about and talking about. Now, like I've said in previous groups, I, this is all just possibly coincidence, but it's a fun, it was a fun day. <laughs> and I got to have a different experience than I ordinarily would. One of less frustration, but it required a few things of me. It required me to let go of some of my cultural conditioning that I'm behind, that I'm late, that this is taking too long. And it helped me because it was Memorial Day and I don't really have somewhere to be. I just have an idea that I would be here at this time and then I would bring the kombucha home at this time. Even when we're in our leisure, we still are upset about time. I'll be with, you know, a friend driving on a casual Saturday, we have nowhere to go, and they're complaining about the, how long the stoplight is or something like that. So it's just ingrained in us that things should happen at a certain time, like we've described. And people impose on you when things should happen in time. You should be married by now. You should, uh, you know, be finished with school by now. You should have more money than that for your retirement by now. That should have happened already in time. Now, so anyways, this is known as retrocausality. I'm not saying that it's true, 
But I am saying that there is a cultural conditioning that does impact the way we feel time flowing. Is it possible that the idea that time flows in any direction at all and how we relate to it, is it possible that that is a cultural idea? Well, I started to look into this and I learned that in 1938, there was a chemical engineer in Hartford, Connecticut. He was a fire prevention specialist. He worked for Hartford Insurance Company. In his spare time, once you know it, he's interested in um, Udo Aztecan languages, Mesoamerica. His pastime is mastering Latin American uh, languages. And so he studies Nahuatl in Mexico and some other languages, and he starts to gain mastery over them and starts writing essays and they attract the interest of the experts of the day. He's a, an insurance um, engineer trying to understand fire prevention, and, and that's his day job. Edward Sapir of Yale, one of the foremost uh, linguistic theorists of his time in the, in the first half of the 20th century, invites him to be his protege at Yale. So in his spare time, he is studying with a linguistic master, and they start to discharge new assignments to Benjamin Worf, that's his name. And it all leads to him studying the Hopi language. And Worf finds after about four years, he has this innate ability, he can master languages. Linguistic intelligence has now been identified as another form of intelligence. We have IQ, we have MQ, musical intelligence. That's why Einstein said, if you judge a fish by how well it can climb a tree, it'll think it's stupid for its whole life. We all have different ways that we can understand the world, and Benjamin Worf could understand languages. But after four years, he finds there is no time in Hopi language. There's no word for time. There's no past. There's no future. And Hopis, as we've come to know, are one of the most peaceful civilizations of North America and happiest. And he starts looking. There's no before. There's no after. There's no tense in the verbs. And I find this interesting because when there's no tense, there's no tension. So it's really appropriate that we call our language, our, our types of verbology as tenses. And once you deal in tenses, you get tense. When you think things should have happened a certain way, you get tension. That's where anxiety comes from. So there's actually a linguistic component to this, and he called this, because he was inspired by Einstein at the time, he called this linguistic relativity. Later on, people started to discredit Worf. They said, well, he just wasn't looking deep enough. There is some words for later and tomorrow and stuff. But Worf wasn't necessarily wrong about the idea that our language informs our idea about time being real and the way that it flows. Because in the 1970s, another uh, theorist found that there is a civilization. If it wasn't the Hopi, there is a current indigenous civilization with no time. The Piraha civilization, descendants of the Incan Empire, 
currently surviving in the Amazon rainforest by the Maisi River. They have no word for time. And a, uh, a Christian missionary in the 70s was, like Worf, naturally able to master languages. And he went to the Moody Bible Institute and became a Christian missionary. And one part of the world where they could not convert people and they could not, not a single person, and they could not translate the Bible into that civilization's language was the Piraha. They said, Daniel, we want you to go here with your family and spread the gospel. Because for some reason, after 20 years, we have been unsuccessful to translate the Bible, the gospel into their language and to convert a single person. So this is a fantastic journey. And he goes with his family and it takes him a while to be accepted by the Piraha tribe. <clears throat> but they're a peaceful people. And after three years, he masters their language. The language is more humming, whistling, and singing. And they quickly realize that he's there to teach them about Jesus. And at one point, before they accepted him, Everett realizes that they're going to kill him. And he's listening and listening, and he has this Im Im amazing linguistic intelligence. And finally, he puts it together. They're talking about killing me. So he gathers up all of their weapons and his family. He's there with his wife and three kids, and he locks himself in a room. And the Pirahas start laughing. They go, well, this guy's more intelligent than we thought. They think he's stupid. <laughs> Because he can't get around, he can't survive, he's traveling with a whole bunch of stuff and he's very clunky. So in their world, he's not very bright. But they thought that was bright. So they accept him and they tell him, we know you're here to teach us about Jesus. And so he said, yeah, that's right, you know. And he's starting to communicate after three years with them. And they're asking him, so, what does Jesus look like? Does he look like us? Is he brown like us? And he's like, well, you know, I haven't seen him. And they're like, what? You haven't seen him? Then why are you trying to teach us about him? And for the Pirahat, there is no past. There's no writing. There's no language. There's no book. There's no creation myth. Almost every culture has a creation myth. The Egyptians, time was created by the sun god, Ra. For the Greek, you have... Kronos. Kronos is the god of time. And Kronos gave birth to, you know which god? Zeus. Time is the father of God in Greek mythology because Kronos gave birth to Zeus. So in Hinduism, we have Kala or Yama. Yama means death, but also means time. Kala means time, and the god of time is Mahakala, the great time. So you see time and creation personified in almost every part of the world with a story, but not in the Piraha. And they tell him, if you haven't seen him as your father, as your father, can you describe? And he's like, no, 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 no. Like nobody's seen him. <laughs> that's living. And then the, they're totally disinterested. And that's why it never lands for them because they have no past. They don't even know their great grandparents. 
They know something about their grandparents while they're alive. When they're gone, they're gone. When tomorrow, when yesterday is gone, it's gone, and there's no word for it. There's no tense in the pirha. And they have found, and since then, since those, since that time in the 70s, uh, other psychologists have found it's the happiest civilization that they've ever seen. And they've made a documentary about it called The Grammar of Happiness because there's no tense. Because there's no tense in the language, there's no tension. And Everett, Professor Everett, gradually diminishes his religiosity. He starts to become very self-conscious. And he realizes that they see him as a superstitious man and they're more empirical. And he starts to feel primitive. Here I am trying to promote a creation myth <laughs> in some civilization in another part of the world that's happier than I am. And I'm trying to sell them a story that I've never seen and nobody's ever seen from a book that was taught to me. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Christianity. I'm just saying that he felt awkward. And he felt superstitious. I'm trying to push a creation myth in some other strange part of the world. And spontaneously he let go and he started to live in the present with them and he started to see the secret of their happiness. And other people said to Everett, Professor, <clears throat> Professor Everett, when he came out, you know, this isn't, this isn't intelligence. This is what comes from hundreds of years of inbreeding. They can't think about time. They're not intelligent enough. And it was true, they couldn't even count. Professor Everett tried to teach him how to count to 10, and for three years he could not even by taking one Brazil nut and then putting a second one and speaking two, it could never land for them. They could understand large, like I have a large amount of food, but they would not go into numbers. And it turned out they only came to the classes where he was teaching them not to learn, but for the present experience of togetherness and to be together and to laugh and smile at each other and because he brought popcorn. <laughs> and so when they said this to Professor Everett, these people, they have very little intelligence. It's a very primitive consciousness or primitive brain. Professor Everett said, that's totally insane. That's foolish because they can't do a few things that we can and it makes us really upset that we can do those things, divide time and instill ideas of time and should and all these tenses, past subjective and what would I have done if I could go back, all these types of verb tenses. Because they can't do that, they're somehow less intelligent. He says, um, a Piraha man can go naked into the jungle with nothing at all, come back three days later dressed with baskets of food, skins, boat, and weapons. And he said, can we do that? I mean, is that not intelligence? They will not get lost, no matter where they go in the jungle. And they will travel to see their friends 10 days away by canoe on the river as if they're their next door neighbor. Just peacefully traveling everywhere, living in the, in the now. The Brazilian government has now mandated that they have to go to school, and children are going to school. And 
In the last 10 years, the population is rapidly declining. There was, there was around 800, but maybe it's significantly less in the last few years since I read about these stories. And since they went to school and have been given some belongings because when the government sees their poverty and people see their poverty, they want to help. But by giving them some things, the children have developed cavities and the adults have become obese. And we say we're helping them by taking away their cultural experience and forcing them to have our cultural experience. And now they're on the verge of extinction. So I understand the, the motivation to help, but at the same time, it's difficult to impose our cultural ideas onto another culture. And does language inform time? Is it possible that there is no such thing as time because there's no language for time? Well, let's just look at some cultures for a moment and see how we describe time. For us in English, we talk about time from left to right. If you drew a timeline of your life, wouldn't your birth be on the left and today be at the farthest point to the right, continuing? Well, that's true for us because we write from left to right. Anybody uh, read and write Arabic? Do timelines go from right to left? Yeah. If you go to an Arabic YouTube channel, the, the counter goes on the right side and floats over to the left as the video progresses. In Spanish, if you were to describe, if you were to say, I'm going to take a short break, you might say pequeña. Isn't that possible, right? If I prime you that way, or prep somebody speak Spanish in that way, they'll use volume. Okay, volume. We wouldn't, in English, say I had a small break. We'd say I had a short break. We would talk about length. And it turns out, depending on what language you use to describe the passage of time, that actually changes your perception of how long it took. In experiments where you take Spanish-speaking and Greek-speaking, where they describe time as volume to some extent. So like a big wedding would mean that it lasted for like three days or something. Or a big wedding in English would mean there was a lot of people. A big wedding, for some other cultures, we might call a long wedding. Um, so anyways, Swedish also describes time in terms of length. And if you take uh, if you, you do an experiment with English and Swedish-speaking people and you show a line moving across a screen for three seconds and you ask them to guess what the length is or what the time passes by showing them two versions of that line. One is a short line that takes three seconds. Another one after that will be a longer line, but it also takes three seconds, so it moves faster. Us English speakers and Swedish speakers will not be able to immediately recognize that that was the same length of time. Because in our brains we interpret time as length, we will consciously then have the different experience of more time passed with the longer line. Now there's limits to this. It's not like if there was a super long line we think ages have passed, but it does affect our moment to moment experiences. And if you show somebody who speaks Spanish only, 
a container filling up across time and you change that, they won't readily be able to recognize the, if, the, if a bigger container fills up um, in the same amount of time, that it's still the same time because it's so ingrained in the brain metaphorically and it changes. Uh, so there are other cultures that think of time differently and depending on how they write their language. So like in Mandarin, uh, historically, maybe not so much today, but the script was written from top down in columns. Anybody familiar with that? And so there are words in Mandarin to describe the past as above. So you might say something like, this came above this, which means for us, it came before, which for us feels like behind us. After, later is ahead, okay? The year ahead. They might say the year below. Um, and if you ask them that, and if you prime in that way, uh, they'll think in that way and they'll experience time in that way. Same with us. We think from left to right. Some indigenous populations think in terms of the sun. They will think the future is to the right of them if they're facing south, because that's the way the sun is headed. But if they're facing north, they would talk about the future to the left of them. In the Aymara civilizations of South America, this is in the Andes regions, it's a type of language that has multiple dialects, but millions of people speak it in, in South America. The future is behind them, and the past is ahead. The reason being, you can see your past, you can't see the future. So why would the future be in your front? You can't see it. So the future is behind. And when they talk about the past, they point behind them. I'll meet you tomorrow. <laughs> but it also informs our experience. So I, I, I think that stuff's interesting. You go to different parts of the world and time flows differently depending on how it's thought about, constructed. And in the one, at least one civilization where there's no words for time, as far as we know so far, there is no time. There is no past, present, and future. There's only an ever-present now. And they have a spirituality because they're very reverent to the life in the present moment. It has tremendous value. And cultures then deal with time differently. So like, I've had a glimpse into this as a musician traveling to almost every large city of America and having lived in Europe and Asia and the United States. And I've noticed that in our own country, the pace is different. You go to the South, it's a different pace than in the Midwest, than in New York City. Same time in theory, but the pace is different. I remember being um, down in uh, New Orleans at a, at a restaurant, and it's me and my brother at one table, and there's only one other table with like four people there. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting. We're like, come on, what is taking so long? And Finally, the server comes and he says, sorry, I'm so behind, it's, we're swamped here. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. And, uh, and me and my brother are like, nothing's happening. There's just us and one other table. But the pace is different. You know? When I was in France last year, Peyton and I never had a, uh, 
a bill come to us at any restaurant. There was never a time when the server said, here's your check. You got to make time and let them know your time's up. There's no rush. Now that doesn't fit into our cultural experience and I really love that. But in our culture, we bring the check, but we do so with a disclaimer. No rush, but here it is <laughs> when you're ready. Well, you're already, what? The minute you bring the check, your mind is in the future, when you will pay this in the future. That doesn't exist as far as I experienced in Paris. There's, there's no rush. It's, you, it's your time. But that doesn't work with our cultural uh, obsession with efficiency. Well, if I just leave it up to them, this place could just be filled with people just sitting here. And how will we make money? Because for us, hours equal dollars. But that's not true in every culture. So like in some parts of traditional Chinese culture, if I'm on my way to a meeting and I meet somebody, like I did yesterday, I would just talk to them. Because the relationship has more value than the task. So if I'm late, it's culturally acceptable. If you're late to the task here, it's not culturally acceptable. Like in Japan, a train is on time as long as it's within one minute of its schedule. In France, a train is on time as long as it's within 15 minutes of its schedule. <laughs> Therefore, French trains are pretty accurate according to them. <laughs> so, in some Middle Eastern culture, you take time before you get down to business. Whereas we would want to get down to business right away in other cultures. And to be late is culturally appropriate, to be like 15 minutes. Here, to be five minutes early to a meeting, doesn't it show some kind of respect? If you were going on a date and the person is there right before you, compared to them being there 10 minutes late. If they show up to a date 10 minutes late, you're like, oh, I guess this isn't that important to that person, right? But in another culture, that would be exactly right. Five minutes early says, this is really important to me today and I just want to make sure I'm here on time. But if you come to a meeting any earlier than that, could actually become insulting of another person's time. Come early, but not too early. I don't have all the time in the world for you, but by coming a little early, you're showing me respect. So we have all these different ideas about how, how to use it. But ultimately, we find that it may not be real. And if we don't have the language for it, we may never have ever realized it like I felt before I had the language and the conception that a year has gone forever and we're moving forward. Now, will time come to an end? So many scientists say that the universe after the Big Bang has been expanding and it feels like it's going forward because it's expanding. But in other dimensions or other universes, it surely could be flowing in all different directions. But after the universe finishes its expansion, you could think of this as taking a tennis ball tied to a rubber band and throwing it. Well, it will go faster and faster and go farther away for a while, and then it will start to slow, 
and all of the mass that's that has been in the center going out is still within and all of the fringe expansion still has every all the mass of the universe inside it'll eventually slow its expansion and then it will start to reverse and some scientists actually say that that will be the beginning of the end of time and that's about 4 billion years away about the same time the sun will burn out and perhaps when it's in its contraction then everything will flow the other way seemingly because things are moving outward it seems like time is moving forward but when the contraction starts to happen perhaps everything that has already happened will flow in reverse i don't know we won't be here to find out or maybe we will be <laughs> because we'll be back or we will have never been gone and some people say that the idea that people are here and then they're gone is because we have limited perspective and that's one of the reasons why we meditate to expand our perspective to get to an elevated perspective so when i sit on the street corner watching the memorial day parade i see the floats come into my perception and go out they are born and they die but they're not really dead if i could go up to the top of the sears tower then i could see the whole parade if i can go to the top in meditation i can start to see more and more more and more time perhaps or more and more of the illusion and so we have this experience that it's flowing faster and faster and i put in the description that part of this is because the idea that time is any kind of unit is based on our total experience so one year to a one year old is literally a lifetime as we age one year or any that same unit represents a smaller and smaller fraction of time so this then becomes a logarithmic formula of perceived time and by the time a person is 7 years old in this way they will have witnessed the equivalent of half of their life which is why so much is packed in the beginning even when i read autobiographies i tend to notice the richness of childhood and then i did this this and this got married and got this job and i transferred over to here and you can like describe a decade like in one chapter but you could describe a summer in one chapter of childhood so part of that is that it takes up such a large percentage of known time so what we have is a logarithmic formula of stretched time in the beginning one year feeling literally like its own lifetime and then getting smaller and smaller and smaller compressed at the end and actually after 35 years it doesn't really get too much smaller because the a whole year for a 35 year old is 2% of time and one year to a 100 year old is 1% of time so that's why it just goes fast after you're a full blown adult or after you're in your 30s It's like I mean it does seem like it's going fast but it's just all fast. And yet the days still seem long. Now, why do the days seem long? It's it's because of the same phenomena of when we go to a new place seems like wow, it took a while to get here. And when we come back from that place, well, that wasn't that long. 
the reason is, on the way there, you're making new memories. On the way back, you've already made those memories. So your mind will drift out of the present, and when you look back, there's not much written down in your memory. I guess it happened pretty quickly. As adults, the novelty has worn off. But the novelty has worn off because we aren't practicing meditation. And when the novelty wears off, we don't make a lot of new memories. We have the sense, I've seen it all. So I keep driving the same route to work, and I have nothing to say about it. And so the drive itself in traffic seems long, but after a year of driving to work that seemed long, I look back and say, wow, that year flew by because there's not much written in the journal. So another aspect of this is a child looking at everything for the first time is taking copious amounts of notes. And so when you look back, really time perception is all about memory in the brain. We have the notion that time moves from the past forward because we store memories. If we didn't store memories, we would be more like the Piraha tribe who do not have words for it and do not make memories, are not interested in memories. They may be there, but they give very little importance to them. So what can we do? We can slow down time whenever we are mindful because you become more present and you get out of the past and the future where when your mind is there abstractly, you can't take notes of the present. So when I reflect on how long did that take, It's short because nothing happened. And what is time? Time is happenings, events. If there's no events, there's no time. That's why before the Big Bang, there was no time because nothing was happening. So it's like hitting pause in a movie. There's no time in the movie. Only for us saying that's been paused for 15 minutes. But in the singularity, there is nothing outside of the singularity to say it's been paused for 15 minutes. Everything there is, is paused. So there's no time. But if we start to pay deep attention, we'll notice time slows down. Time starts to dilate, even in the present. And you cannot make memories if you're abstractly thinking. So it's an achievement to be able to plan for the future, but you have to pay something with that tense. You pay with emotion and tension. And so how much do we want to do it? But by practicing deep awareness of the present moment, you slow things down because you're taking a lot of notes. And though you've seen it before, I've seen the drive to this place. But what happens on that drive is actually unlike anything that will ever be. The clouds will never be that way again. The sunset tonight will never ever have that exact configuration that I may witness again in my lifetime. And if I pay deeper attention, I can still take notes like a child and I can start to slow it all down. And it turns out you actually do slow things down. When you are breathing deeply, when we are meditating, I'm slowing down my breath paying deep, deeper, 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 deeper attention to the present. And what happens is things all slow down. The breath is slowing down. The heart is slowing down. The electrical impulses are slowing down. The thought waves are slowing down. 
everything's slowing down. But from your perspective, everything's moving at the same pace. That is something akin to time dilation. Now, don't you think we have these parts in the body? We have a heart. The heart is a pump. Don't you think it has a mechanical life? You get a car, you get a motor. It can't drive for millions and millions of miles. It has a window. Don't you think that there is a mileage for our breath, for our lungs, how many times they could expand and contract before they wear down? Don't you think the heart has a certain amount of pumps before it can just not pump much more than that? And yet, you have some influence of how you want to use it. Sort of like, I have a car. If I just drive that thing into the ground, I'll shorten its life. If I decide, well, sometimes I'll drive. Sometimes I'll keep it still. Well, you may be able to preserve a car from the 50s, a collector, and still take it out for whatever car night and show it off. Similarly, I found that there, there is a mechanical life for some of these parts that's similar among a lot of species. For instance, a mouse has a fast heart rate, but it turns out in its one to three year life, it doesn't beat all that much less than a human heart, maybe one billion times, maybe two billion times. And a human being's heart beats about two billion times maybe three. But just like, no way are you going to live over 150 years old. Maybe 100, maybe 120, but 99.9 repeating will all be within 150. So there's a, you know, there's a window. And there's a few outliers, but for the most part, you have a mechanical life. So the mouse's heart works about as much as the human's does, but it spends so much time beating. What increases our heart rate? What increases everything? Systematically, biologically, uh, tension and tenses. Worry makes me afraid and makes my heart beat faster, makes more hormones get produced and, and things get compromised in the biological system and I use up more of my breaths. When somebody is having more anxiety, when they're angry, doesn't the breath go faster? A tortoise, a sea tortoise in South America can live up to 280 years, maybe. And it breathes four times a minute, four times slower. And we live, you know, maybe 70 years, four times less. I mentioned that there was a tree in the last meeting that's 9,500 years old. We think we can just chop them down because they're just senseless things. They have no life, they have no consciousness. And yet, that tree knows how to do what every human being is deeply wishing they could achieve, to have longevity. And we think there's nothing to learn from it. But the yogis knew that you could learn from every other life form. That's why there's Qigong, by watching the bullfrog breathe out of its belly. That's why there is the slow meditative breath, watching the tortoise. They watched, they learned, and 
And some of these indigenous populations and wisdom traditions, they even watch the plants and they learn. What is the secret of the tree? Everything is slow. Its thought waves or its impulses, because they have electrical impulses, are moving at fractions of the speed of ours. Our mind is racing, everything's racing, and our pace is fast, and we rush through life, and we trying to always get somewhere else in time. The American dream is all about the future, not living here and now, and always building towards some other point in time where you could be happy. But you don't have it here and now because you can't access your 401k yet. You can't retire yet. That's all in the future. And so it definitely affects our ability to be able to deeply enjoy life. And if we meditate, we can slow it all down. If I meditate, then I'm breathing slower and I'm slowing everything down. And the studies do show, yes, you can live longer because on the cellular level, you're protecting your DNA longer. There's caps on the DNA called telomeres and the telomeres continuously shrink until they get so small, the DNA unravels like a shoelace, like the cap flying off of a shoelace. And then you get diseases and you age and you die. It's the strongest predictor of your real age, indicator of your real age. And you can go get your telomere measurement in a laboratory by taking like a cheek swab of cells. And if you meditate, your brain produces an enzyme called telomerase, which maintains the telomere and rebuilds it. And as long as you can keep preserving the DNA and protecting the cellular life and slowing down its trajectory, you can have longer life. So meditation definitely translates to longer life, but that's not the point. The point is not to live longer. The point is to live deeper. And the Dalai Lama said that friends are like days. Old friends will pass away and new friends will come. Old days will pass away and new days will come. But the important thing is to make them all meaningful. 